Dr. Jos Broschotz is a professor of health psychology at Leiden University. He is one of the first to show that stress affects the immune system through his research of psychophysiological mechanisms of stress in daily life. While researching stress as a worldwide epidemic, Jost Broschot also recognizes the importance of where all this stress stems from and why this is happening now. His specific inquiry of how unconscious stress and prolonged physiological stress responses affect our mental and physical well-being has opened up the conversation to mental health and its tangible effects. Jos Broschot, welcome to The Creative Process. Nice to be there. So your work is so important and something we've really been reflecting on more, particularly during the pandemic, there was this stress that we've all gone through and you identify this as affecting our health, our lives, our productivity on so many levels. I believe you're going to share with us something that helps us understand and outline the subject of your research. Yeah. So I'm a professor of psychology specialized in the chronic stress response the response that can actually make us sick and die earlier than we should. And a chronic stress response means a continuously high blood pressure, heart rate, stress hormone level, and so on. And 60 years of stress science have not yielded an explanation for these chronic stress responses. So it can't explain why, for example, lonely people show a chronic stress response while they experience hardly any stressful events? And why do people with a history of early life stress show a continued chronic stress response in their adult life? And the same question can be asked about discriminated minorities or living in an urbanized area without much green. Why do people in these situations fall sick earlier and die prematurely? So several years ago, my colleagues and I got a new insight that may help to explain these responses. It's based on neurobiology and evolutionary science. And this insight is that the stress response is not a response triggered by stressful events, but a default response that is always on, but normally inhibited when safety is perceived by the so-called prefrontal brain. In other words, it's all about being better safe than sorry. And it works like this already for millions of years of evolution. And so it's very automatic and unconscious. So we are often chronically stressed without being aware of it. Well, these insights led to a new theory that we called GUTS, the Generalized Unsafety Theory of Stress to which I currently dedicate nearly all of my working time. Safety is about needs that are important for survival. So social animals need to be connected. And thus lonely dogs, sheep, and so on show chronic stress responses and die earlier. But there are many other needs. Cats, for instance, need to hide. And many birds need washing opportunities. Pigs and wild boar need to root, and so on. And if these needs are not met, these animals remain stressed. Now, one of our most intriguing questions is, what are precisely our own concrete so-called non-negotiable needs? How many friends are enough to keep the default stress response down? Are social media of any help? Do we need touch? And so on. And what physical spaces do we exactly need? How much nature? Stress science should stop studying stressor, but focus on what we really need. Finally, from a broader perspective, this is not only health. Far before having these bodily consequences, lack of perceived safety reduces our general performance, our cognitive flexibility, our creativity and exploration, our mood and our libido. Indeed, it gives us so much to think about. And there's this generational knowledge that gets passed on. We had a lot of rituals, religion or meditation, or depending on what culture you come from, 
there seems to be a lot of things that we knew without knowing them, things that we practiced without realizing that they had health benefits in the past with increased mobility and people being uprooted and moving to the other side of the world that unconsciously creates this sense of insecurity. We think we're coping, but we're not quite coping. So what do you feel like is the role of some of this generational knowledge that we may be losing, maybe in the process of forgetting to our modern technologies, our, our contemporary behaviors. Yeah, I think much of many cultural traditions, rituals took care of all these things that we so badly need, the social things, but also it helped us to understand or predict the world. The more cosmopolitan you become, the more you are faced with different rules and norms and values. And well, that was not the case in previous times. And some of the politically more conservative movements in, that we are facing now in the last decades, people want to go back to these times that things were predictable and we need a predictable world. That's one of our needs that we share with animals, by the way. Yes, and I think that this sense of this longing for community and belonging, we can see it at the roots of some kind of behaviors of going towards social media, which is a kind of faceless community. So it doesn't have that real, you pause it, touch or that actual face-to-face communication. So it's a kind of a false security. And there has these other elements like trolls or people who are not quite good actors in those spaces. Yeah, it's still an open question whether social media, and of course there are so many types of social media, can replace uh, the actual presence of other people. To a certain extent, it tricks our unconscious mind into believing that you're a part of a group. But to a certain extent, it's also true, but it depends. And I think we are just in the beginning of all these social development and social communication developments. I think there are, if you type in stress and Facebook use or something like that in the scientific databases, you still don't find a lot. So it, this takes time just to see what kind of effect it has on our, for instance, our stress levels. I think that in previous generations, there was less of an expectation of constant happiness. There was an expectation of, you know, pain, a degree of suffering, a degree of doing without. And we're now accustomed to believing that we can have plenitude. We can constantly manufacture or purchase happiness. And so there have been, and you must study as well, the, the division between pleasure and pain. When we increase, we get addicted to our dopamines and our pleasure. We have this expectation that we become addicted to it. And so therefore, we're not accustomed to the pain. So the pain seems even greater, even though it is just like a normal. It's normal to have both. So how do we kind of balance that? Yeah, I think that the pain, people who suffer less from pain if they are socially connected. They call it a social support buffer. But according to uh, to our model, our thinking, it's more like we are actually feeling safe. So the stress response is more inhibited. And stress is a really a strong enhancer, amplifier of bodily pain. So that's one possible uh, answer. And the other one is that, uh, yeah, I agree completely that, you know, our previous generations were not so much hunting for happiness. But you can broaden that idea. Nature, evolution, is not about happiness at all. It's not even about negative or positive. These are just words, ideas that us humans in our language, it's all about survival. And if you ask this simple, but actually very complicated question, do we need happiness for survival? Yes, it's very interesting. The purpose of life it isn't happiness. Maybe it's to maintain one's family and connections and not to think of one as an individual. And as you think about like the purpose of life as being survival, 
we noticed that there is that purpose of stress, the cortisol, the you know stress hormone, serving a purpose when it comes to survival or when we have to have an adrenaline burst, that laser focus that you see, say, for instance, in animals or apex predators, it can help in that moment of risk, existential risk, it can help them survive. Yeah. When we aren't facing a real existential crisis or risk, how do we then draw that down? so that we're not uh, triggering it unnecessarily. It's very important for animals, including men, to be safe. For us, social animals, the most important factor is to be connected, to know that other people around that you can trust. And we need a kind of space in which we are safe. We need to be able to look into a distance to see uh, possible dangers. But we also need areas that can uh, supply us with food and water and so forth. So as all these needs are sort of met, we will have more time and more literally more cognitive space to explore the world around us. And that's exactly what you see in animals also. The more safe they are, the less stressed they are, the more they start to explore the world around them. As long as we have these basic needs, then we can start to plan to come up with new things. That's exactly what the mankind has, has done so well, come up with new solutions. What can we learn from animals who, by and large, face existential risks more often because they don't dominate the planet in the way that we do? What can we learn from their survival instincts and how they deal with stress? Or would they even call it stress? For them, it's life. Animals have, a, in a way, a sort of kind of advantage. Animals don't worry. don't have the brain to uh, predict into the future or ruminate about the past. And that's what anthropologists call that the time machine. And it's estimated that was developed in our ancestors like a half a million years ago or something like that. So animals, as long as there is no immediate threat and they are safe and if they're in a group, they graze and they do their thing. We can also try to live in the here and now. And the interesting thing is that uh, that mindfulness and other similar kind of meditations, their popularity has grown so much. Mindfulness is and other types of meditation are trying to get back into a state that animals find themselves in very often. I think it's part of that might be related to the fact that they really need to use their energy wisely. So when there's a predator coming for them, they have to be so focused in that exactly. moment. So it's not useful for them to be worried about small things. They have to completely yeah. repose then and then wait for the moment when they're being attacked. And yet there's the real stresses. We actually are facing, they call it the sixth extinction. And so there are real reasons for climate anxiety. And yet I find that I know a lot of young people, a lot of people who are concerned about that. And yet it, oftentimes we seem to be stressing about more trivial matters than actually focusing on, say, solving that when we really need to be focusing our existential energies yeah. elsewhere. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that we have to realize that we are, probably the only species on earth that can do this, that can actually focus and try to focus on the yeah, on the broader types of well-being. It's very, very intriguing that we can do that. I see this not only as a kind of cognitive performance that we can do this with our brain, but also a kind of extension of what they call being pro-social or youth social even. There is hardly any other animal that can do something for another member of the same species that it doesn't know, a total stranger. There's this wonderful book of Wilson about the social conquest of the earth. And he makes this point that humans are you social. So even more than pro-social, we do things for other people that we don't know and also for animals that we don't know. And we can actually uh, make use of that 
trait of ours. We only have to teach it yeah, how we communicate this to the new generations. Uh, it's not so much an, a problem that we have to, uh, to tackle because people are naturally uh, prepared to do things for others and also for other species, for other animals. So of the different of the arts of meditation or religion, the different traditions that are metaphysics or even Stoic philosophy, many ways to catch our thinking, to be aware of ourselves, to direct it in positive directions. Of those of the vast variety, what are some intriguing and interesting ones for you and perhaps that you've applied your research to? You mean in the area of meditation or well, yes, meditation and the different rituals, the different, you know, there are many okay. traditions. Well, I'm one of these persons that I love mindfulness, but I hardly ever do it. <laughs> no time. I'm also typical for many psychologists, a little bit neurotic and I worry a lot. So we taught ourselves to deal with this by getting control over your worrying. And you can do that by postponing worry, for instance. I mean, we found ourselves the whole day worrying about things with you don't need to worry about these problems at every moment of the day. So a very simple trick is to tell yourself, I'm allowed to worry half an hour later this day. We have done that kind of research with literally thousands of students in many groups. And we always found that it helped not only to bring worry down, also worry duration, the number of minutes that people worry during the day, but also decrease their health problems, their complaints also. So it's very simple. It's part of a, a therapy, a, an official therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy for people who really suffer on a clinical level, the generalized anxiety disorder. But we took out that particular simple element of worry postponement. And that's what I regularly do myself. I read every morning the thoughts for the day. Very often about yeah, becoming less selfish, more in the world, live and act or work for others or for nature. It very often led me to, to do some very concrete things. For instance, send an SMS or a WhatsApp to my daughter or my son or to start talking in the train to other people. Yeah, it's so true. And then also that if we're lucky to live near nature or even we can visit a park, we can hear birdsong or music. This is another way, a connection with the arts. It has that sense of connection and beauty surrounding oneself with yeah. the simplicity and beauty. Yeah. Yeah, one of the many domains we call it, that things that we need is, is kind of natural environments. And it's also a growing scientific area, nature and health. But seeing nature, being in nature, why that exactly is, is good for our health, good for our well-being. And uh, one of the major reasons we think is that it's the type of world we developed in as a species. Thus, the type of information that we need for our brain to decide in this very automatic and unconscious way that it's safe. So in an urban world with stone buildings, it's simply more difficult for our brain and more ambiguous. And as a result, if there is no information, then you get this default of our body. So the hypothesis is that all these buildings in a city are for a large part from people that we don't know. If you say this to animal researchers, they will immediately say, well, then you become stressed because we have an inbuilt fear for strangers, like all animals. Try to find where that actually starts. Does it start the fear of strangers when we are born? No, it starts when we are about six months old. And that's exactly the age that we start to crawl. So go away from our parents or the primary caretaker. And then it becomes important that you should not trust others. And then I get back to your first question. 
in our complicated world, we have to learn a lot because we have to learn that all these strangers are in fact safe. So it's the fact that we are living among strangers and buildings that are owned by other people that may just have this tiny effect on our chronic stress response. Indeed, and that element of uncertainty. And then you spoke about many things that are important, you know, access to green spaces or even natural daylight, whether you're facing natural sunlight for the greater part of the day. And the other thing that we think about, we know there are many advantages of technology, but when you have a human conversation face-to-face with someone, you're getting that information at a human pace. That's the pace that our bodies were designed for. And with technology, we have this acceleration. It just keeps on getting faster and faster, which is great. But at the same time, that's not a human level. That's a computerized, digitized level that we are, where bodies aren't designed for. Exactly. I agree completely. It damages our natural uh, communication. And uh, well, we all know what the reason for it is that they, all these different apps compete to, to keep our attention. And, and that's why they are so fast. And so uh, my message to the younger generations is, uh, well, really try to build in smartphone-free hours in your life because this is not good. We should look at what it does with our stress response, this constant connection to, to a fast-changing communication apps. You know, if you are my generation, you tend to overlook the importance of this because I started rather late with smartphones. I didn't know what FOMO was. My daughter had to teach me. There are many more factors that decrease our natural safety in modern life. Yeah, I think it's judicious use. The other thing is that goes hand in hand with sleep, I believe, is the fact that we're just many of us not sleeping well. We're not getting that full night's sleep. So we're just never turning off. We're becoming so close to our machines that we're treating our bodies like they were machines and that we could be on constantly. And that can't be good for stress or just our body cycles. No, exactly. We did some sleep research because one of our first topics when we started to look at chronic stress was to see what, what happens during the night. The funny thing is that during the night, we don't worry in general, we sleep. So that brought us to the idea of unconscious stress. But the most important thing about sleep for stress is not so much what happens during sleep, but how long we sleep. And why? Because if you don't sleep enough, it has effects on your body. We believe that if your body is not fit enough, I'm talking about evolution again. It was very important for our ancestors for literally millions of years to be to be fit. So that if you get older or too, too heavy or ill, you should turn your stress response already on a somewhat higher level because you will need more for fighting and fleeing. You are not fit. And that's also what happens with, uh, with sleep. So people who sleep well shorter than they should or have a low sleep quality, they are chronically stressed during the day simply because their body is not in a good shape or where it's made for, amongst others, fighting and fleeing. I mean, we are stuck with these millions of years old tendencies or needs that we have. Just discuss a little bit the how it adversely having too much, being too stressed, how that adversely affects our lifespan, our health, and just our quality of life. If you are chronically stressed and your autonomic nervous system is too active and these hormones like cortisol are somewhat higher, what basically happens is all these things that you really need during stress response, if you are fighting or fleeing, from a predator, from a lion, it's very important that all other activity in your body is stopped. So your digestion is stopped, your growth hormone, everything is stopped because you need all the 
energy and all the materials to get away from that lion. But that shouldn't take more than like, let's say an hour or something. If it takes longer, if it takes a day or days, then it starts to take its toll. If your immune response is suppressed for a couple of days, you get sick because your body cannot defend itself anymore against illness disease. Your cortisol, for instance, which is the hormone that starts to damage its own control center in your brain with the result that the next time you're even more and longer stressed than before. And that's what you see in older people, many continuously high cortisol levels. It means all these systems in their body are continuously inhibited. For instance, the system that renovates their bones is suppressed by a cortisol. That's one of the reasons that older people get bones that are more brittle and so on. When you are stressed, when you're chronically stressed, that leaves its traces in these uh, systems. So there are many, many mechanisms leading to an, uh, a shorter life. There's obviously genuine uh, real reasons for being stressed. One is a refugee or the elderly, maybe they're thinking about the possibility of death. And on the other side of it, we have like diseases of abundance or affluence where, as you say, it's creating these stress responses when there is no reason for it. I think it's sometimes, like you say, fear of missing out or whatever. We're seeing people enjoying themselves on the other side of the world. We're longing for that. So we're creating these conditions It's yeah. when we're perfectly healthy otherwise. Yeah, well, let's take the example of FOMO, fear of missing out. We had a vacation in Cuba and my son was uh, like 11 years old. And instead of enjoying, you know, Cuba, uh, he was still, he was constantly looking at his smartphone to see what uh, Joel was doing back in the Netherlands. And I said to him, come on, Felix, enjoy Cuba. You're in Cuba. And then uh, my daughter said, well, that's FOMO. But this is only one of the new stressors and What's happening here is that you prolong a stress response because you don't feel safe because the group that you want to be connected with is not there. But most of our stressors, and that's true for animals also, last very short. That's the case with most of our stressors. And uh, the ones that take longer are, are not so much stressors in the sense that there is an immediate danger, but it has to do either with worrying or these needs that are not met, like with lonely people, there's nothing going on. There's no immediate threat. If you were lonely a hundred thousand years ago, you were in real danger because like with all social animals, if you are alone, you are the prey of a predator very easily. You don't get food very easily because all these things we need the others for. Humans are extremely social even. We didn't need the group to protect us against predators. We need the group to teach us. Humans are cultural animals. I don't know if you have heard of the book, but it's the Darwin's Unfinished Symphony. The Darwin was interested in culture, but this research, this scientist from, from England or from Scotland, Kenneth Leyland, he wrote this book and it's wonderful. It shows how extremely social we are. It starts with when you buy something and you don't know how it works, you just look on the internet and you find some stranger who is going to explain it to you. Why are all these hundreds of thousands of people on the internet explaining how things work on YouTube and not for their own friends, but for total strangers? So one of the many things that we differ in with other animals it's that we have this natural inclination to teach others. It's so important for us to be in groups. It was so important for us of years. And it's still important. Although somebody who's lonely sitting in her flat and not seeing anybody except the TV, ob objectively, physically, she or he is not in danger. But it's our old system that tells us you should connect yourself to the group because we were in danger for hundreds of thousands of years. 
So how do we build that resilience? There are some groups like you could look to the military or the Shaolin monks or to others who extreme sports and they're able to build a resilience with them where they can tap into something deep in themselves and they can really undergo a lot of stress, but they're able to focus on their vitals, on fulfilling the mission, on working collectively. How can we tap into that? Which again goes back to that generational knowledge. And rituals. Yeah. Well, interesting that you that you made that link between monks and uh, and the military, because one of the things that they share is that they train a lot, a tremendous lot. I'm Sarah Dickerson, a second year student at Syracuse University, majoring in psychology. I'm also an intern at the Creative Process, and have absolutely loved listening to this episode and reflecting on how my own stress affects me. As they started discussing resilience within oneself. It reminded me of the impatience of Western culture. Let me get into why I thought that. People tend to chase self-actualization without realizing that their other needs will need to be met before reaching that type of transcendence. The lifestyle of individualism, this one specifically that yearns for success, oftentimes lacks this foundational need of love and belonging that we desire, and with that, the support that we need. My generation, as well as many others, have become entitled to this fantastical, euphoric feeling that we've convinced ourselves that's how life should be all of the time. When we see others who we perceive are doing well and being happy, then when our mental health starts to manifest as something physical, that's when people start to actually pay attention to the real problem. I love how this interview looks deeper into this and instead of focusing on stressors that come later, the effects of the problem, Yost Broshotes recognizes the importance of understanding how at this core, our mental state affects the long-term well-being of not just our mental health, but our physical bodies. What I value most from this interview are the possible solutions or ways of releasing this stress that are discussed. As a huge advocate for therapy, when Yost Broshotes mentioned cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT, I was elated. I find it amazing how supportive and powerful our own inner voices can have the ability to be when we're in stressful situations. It's all a matter of understanding why we feel this way and how to feel more safe that can help us get to that stage of self-assurance. For instance, when I was doing CBT to treat my OCD, my therapist had me practice saying no to my compulsions. It's definitely easier said than done, but after months of practice, I was able to get through my work without needing to stop. A little habit that sounds so simple can actually have an immense effect on how we perceive ourselves and the world around us. And that's what I love so much about the brain and the research that's going into this. Now let's get back to the conversation. If you train yourself also with the mindfulness meditation or another meditation, you automatize certain ways of thinking. And that's extremely important because it's, if you automatize things, cognitive processes, you don't have to think about them. It's just like uh, learning to play the piano or learning to bike. It works exactly in the same way. There are multiple studies showing that if you learn to meditate, you see the same things happening in their brains as when you learn to play the violin. Not in the same places in the brain, but it's a matter of training and training and training. And what we call resilience is in a way a trained performance of these monks. And and the other thing is, uh, let's not forget, because we are, if you talk about uh, especially the military, what makes their resilience really great is that they have very often a very strong bond between them. 
especially when they have been facing danger. So there are multiple studies of teams in Afghanistan and Iraq war, Americans coming home. And so the strength of the group or the love, if you want to in the words of some of these guys, it's even stronger than for their wife or for their kids, for their family. That's also something that has to do with our evolution. Because it was extremely important that you could trust each other when you were hunting or fighting another or predators or another tribe or whatever. So what you do is you undergo a very stressful time together and you survive and then the bond is for life. That's also extremely important. My wife and I very often, because we have a very long relationship already, lots went wrong in our relationship, but we still are together. We think it's exactly because we have experienced so many things in our life that makes the bonds much stronger than in younger, shorter relationships. And also with friends, it's the bonds and the training. And I think that part of that stress is somehow, well, fear of the unknown. And what when we talk about building resilience, we know that we can overcome something so we know we can survive and so we becomes to be this faith in the unknown and it might have been instilled in previous centuries by religion we know that religion isn't as, as practiced as much now but yeah. i remember hearing this story that if you're told like you had to cross a desert and you're told that you'll be going days without food or water and given nothing then that becomes unsurmountable. But if you're given, say, a flask that may has a little bit of water and say only you can only open that if it comes to it and you need it, you have that at your side. And that's like faith. It's something that yeah. carries you through that you don't really even tap into, but you know it's there and it gives you that strength to make it through what are impossible situations. I always carry headache medicine, although I hardly ever use them anymore as a kind of talisman, but I know what you mean. I think that for most people, for everybody, the early, the first year is extremely important. As I said earlier, you have to learn safety, the sources of safety or the signals of safety in your life. And that's what your parents and others do to learn to generalize. So those people who appear to be fearless and enjoying any kind of challenge. I mean, I don't see myself as I'm so, somewhere half between neurotic and somebody who likes all challenges. All kinds of reasons, I think. but. If you have this very good early life in which and you can handle so much things in life, and that's reverse those who have, I said it in the beginning, who have experienced early life stress or just being, you know, emotionally neglected in their first couple of years, they have a, an unconscious mistrust of the world. And it is sadly extremely difficult to heal. You can much more easily heal a simple phobia or worrying then this basic trust, it's, it becomes even more grim if you look at newer studies that show that even before you are born, a couple of these things are already determined for you. So if your mother was stressed during being pregnant of your, you, yeah, you have already, you are born with a stress system that's already a little bit more uh, responding more strongly. We learn already in the womb of our mothers that it's, uh, it's okay or not okay outside. And that makes sense also from a evolutionary perspective, of course. Exactly. And another thing is, it seems to me, it doesn't matter so much if you go through these struggles, as you say, with your wife or with your family. Once you know someone else is there to share that burden, in some cultures, they collectively fast. And to go through this together with the military or monks or however, somehow it means you're not experiencing it alone. It's okay. And what was interesting during the pandemic 
was, I mean, there were many unfortunate things, but so many people said, oh, it was the first time that I felt like everyone in the world was united and having the yeah. same or similar experience. Yeah. And that made it kind of spiritual in a sense. Yeah. yeah, That was interesting. We were walking in the woods here every day <laughs> and we saw these, and it was not allowed to be uh, even in the woods with more than two people. So we saw all these people like from our age uh, walking there. We were secretly laughing at each other. But I know what you mean. It's on the one side, uh, many people got isolated. And on the other, it was a more general uh, yeah, feeling of being connected and uh, together. I mean, many positive things came out of, you know, in terms of the world and energy. And here in, in the Netherlands, you see that in the politics, that there is enormous change and more attention to really poor people. And See, there was this opportunity for reflection and connection, even if you couldn't commune with people, but this sense to build something for the future, to make sure we don't experience this again, to look out for others. They had this chance to reflect. And also, I think, you know, question the systems that we live in. And we found that with the great resignation with people questioning, like, I could make more time for my family. I could work from home for, yeah. uh, you know, a number of days a week or something. Yeah. There's ways to evolve our systems. It's not really necessary. Yeah. What do we value as opposed to extracting value? But what do we value and how can we work towards that? Yeah. Yeah, I think I always have to think of the people who suffer, really suffered, like young people, isolated, and they don't have this extended network, which is one of the reasons, of course, they typically suffer from things like FOMO and not the somewhat older people. They have their networks already in order and we survived. I mean, we could, we were not used to see our friends certainly anyway, but the young people and the students, it was heartbreaking in my university also, these students who were especially those from abroad who didn't have any chance to meet other students. And it was really, really bad. So that's the other side of it. We shouldn't forget that. So in Holland, we have this, I think in other places too, in other countries, there is a growing movement that believes that we shouldn't do it in this way again with these lockdowns. We should find another solution because it was really bad for especially young people. And so as you think about the future and education and stress and well-being and how we can live lives of greater purpose and meaning, what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? I think that from my perspective as a stress researcher, they should engage in training themselves with meditation and think very hard about what they really want later. And not that everything is about earning money. And that's very important. I would like to have young people in schools to be confronted more with nature. Go outside, see what it does to you. I mean, for us, it was so naturally to go outside and play in the green in this little village that I live in. There are many places that the kids can just play soccer or whatever. We never see them in the last 20 years. We never see them outside. That cannot be good. You know, you should go outside. Not only for your mental health, kind of stress reduction, also to learn what nature does to you, what being outside does to you. And also for, I don't know if you know the hygiene hypothesis, it's even good for your immune system to play in earth outside. That's one thing. And the other is try to refrain from the social media. And that's why it's so important that I mentioned it just once. And you also mentioned it to be close to people, literally close to people. In one of the many, many articles that I found during my search in the last years, one of these researchers said, well, touch is actually our most, our oldest way to communicate. If I see kids of 10 years old in a school square, they are constantly touching each other. 
It's so important. We have to get them off their smartphones and so on. I don't know how, but I think that's very important. Yeah. And deal with the real world and get real friends. And I, I wonder if, you know, there are so many things that I would like to see in the future, the outcomes of researching to it. For instance, things like Tinder and the ways that, that young people now find their, well, their partner for life. There must be research. I have not looked into it, but it's my impression from my own broad network that's very few of these digitalized partner apps really work simply because there are so many things that are important in touch, smell, and the direct non-verbal communication of the body also that you don't see in all these things. It's so extremely important. So I think that many of these apps will simply not survive. That's my optimistic view again, because young people will learn that this is not the way that they get the important things in life. Indeed, there's so much. It's the energy, the nonverbal communications, the sense, the touch, all those things that it's like what we are able to say or write. It's just like the tip of the iceberg, but it's the roots. It's everything yeah, that's absolutely. hidden that, that's the most nourishing. So thank you, Jos Burschot, for sharing your insights into stress, well-being, happiness, and helping us understand the meaning of feeling connected to other people so we can regain a sense of joy and live lives of greater purpose and meaning. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you for having me. My thank pleasure. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Mischowski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interview producer on this episode was Sarah Dickerson. Digital media coordinator was Sam Myers. Winter Time was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.